In Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we considered what the law of God is. What is the purpose of the law of God? The law of God, his commandments for us, his word to us, they reflect his absolute standard. They are good, or they are for our good, they are good, and they are for our good and his glory. The law of God is given for our good and God's glory. They are all that we need for life and godliness. The law of sin and death, on the other hand, are the voices of our own flesh, the world, and the devil that keep us from knowing God and his ways. So the law of God wants us to come closer to him, to have that relationship with him, to experience the love of God and the presence of God. The law of sin and death wants to keep us separated from God. That, that's what death is, that we would be separated from God. And so the law of God reveals our sin and is the impetus for us to respond to God, to obey his greatest commandments by loving him and loving others. As we love God and love people, we obey the Lord's great commission to make disciples. And this morning we're picking up in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, to continue exploring how we live our lives in light of the knowledge of sin and the law. So let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, 
but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now here's the relatively straightforward way in which we can understand this passage of Scripture. The law makes us aware of sin. Once we become aware of sin, our sinful desires are even more strongly expressed. That sin now becomes our focus. Just as it was literally for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the object of our sinful desires becomes the forbidden fruit that we want. We now say, oh, I, I know I shouldn't have it, I want it. Right? It becomes, you know, you, you don't have to, you, don't, you know, the best way to have the child enticed to take what they should not is to tell them, don't take it. Right? Don't take it. Don't touch that. What do they do? They touch it. There is this forbidden fruit aspect in our lives. Right? We, we, we're not aware of the sin as much. The law makes it aware for us and we say, ooh. And we start to pursue it. We literally pursue that which we know is not good or that which we know may be harmful. And so the law makes us aware of our sin. We become more expressed or more focused on that sin and it is that forbidden fruit. And if we pay attention to the law of God, we see the sin for what it is. When we, the more that the law of God reveals the sin, we start to see this sin is utterly sinful. We see the depravity, the, the very depth of that sin and we say, oh, this is, this is bad. I need God, right? We start to turn that way to God. However, this passage that we just read has been vexing for anyone that tries to study it and understand its implications because of the words, I and me. Paul uses I and me continuously through this passage and he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I myself in my mind I'm a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin and when you hear that when you read that and you say when Paul says I or me is he referring to his condition before he became a believer in Jesus or is he referring to his present reality after having served the Lord faithfully for many years Right? I mean, I don't know if you've stopped and considered that, but he's talking. I mean, here is a mature believer. Here is a person who has been following the Lord. Here is a person who has given everything for God. And he's, and he's saying, oh, you know, I am doing this and I can't do this and the evil in me. And, and, and he's saying these things. And if he's describing his current state as a faithful believer 
Although that may seem like a condition that we can personally relate to, I also want to do the right thing, but just like Paul, my sinful nature is so strong that I keep doing the evil. You know, I mean, we, we sort of say, oh, I can relate to Paul. I can, I can understand what he's saying. It's actually quite discouraging. If this is his condition as a faithful, mature believer, then it's actually kind of discouraging. Because it would seem to imply that no matter what, sin will always have control of us and we will always be slaves to the law of sin. So how do we understand this passage? Well, consider everything we just read all the way right up until this verse. Because what we have read in the previous chapters is Paul's statements that because we have been justified in Christ by faith and not by our good works, we are no longer in Adam, in the old covenant relationship with God. That's in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. He says that sin's power over us, us has been broken. That's what we read in chapter 6. He says the Mosaic law has no authority over us. That's what we read in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We're no longer under the law, under the law of God. And we're going to see in chapter 8 that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into God's family. We are de destined for eternal life and glory. Those are very hopeful, optimistic, positive statements. And when you read those statements and you look at all of these things that he's saying here in chapter 7, we continue, or as we continue to struggle with sin and knowingly or unknowingly commit sin, we realize, we remember, we re speak it to one another that we are no longer slaves to sin. We may sin, but we're no longer under the control or the dominion or the mastery of sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. And so, in Romans 7, Paul is elaborating on the conflict he wrote about in Galatians 5.17, where he states, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But in Romans 7, Paul is also writing about the regenerated life in Christ. The new life in Christ Jesus that enables us to be victorious over sin. Paul is not writing about his losing battle with sin. He's writing about the transforming power of God. So we've got to have that perspective. And this will become clearer, this will become very clear as we get into Romans chapter 8. And I want to encourage you to read ahead. I want you to read Romans 8. You know, as it's a wonderful summary of what we have been reading in Romans 1 through 7. So read through chapter 8. It'll take multiple weeks for us to cover chapter 8, but I want you to read through all of it as a whole. It's a wonderful way to see how these things now come to, you know, to bear, to, to, to be brought together. And so in this passage in Romans 7, we have to read Paul's use of I and me as what was and not as what is. As Douglas Moo puts it in his commentary on uh, Romans, I have to be careful that I don't run the risk of forcing the New Testament 
to conform to my own level of spirituality rather than letting the New Testament stand in judgment over my spiritual condition. I can't read into the text and say, well, I'm also prone to this. You know, I, I, I want to do the good, but the evil is in me. You know, I, I see that's what the scripture is telling me. I'm reading that into the text. I can't force the New Testament to conform to my level of spirituality. I have to instead say, what does the New Testament say about my spiritual condition? And so, because, because the risk in misreading this passage, if I read this passage as saying, yeah, I'm evil just like Paul. Right? Uh, the, the risk in that is that I will accept my sin. I'll say, I, you know, I can't help it. Rather than living in the victory Christ has wrought for me. Rather than saying, wait a minute, God has told me that I'm, I can be victorious over this sin, how does that happen? What should I do? Where do I go? I can't just accept this sin. Which brings us to these three points. Pretty quick, but important three points. The law of God brings death. The law of God is intended to bring life, but it actually brings death, is what Paul says here. How? If we remain in the spiritual condition in the sinful condition that the law reveals, then the law brings death. Do you see what I mean? If the law is revealing something to us, if the law, if the light is shining on the road and showing you that there's a wreck up ahead or that the road is washed out or that the bridge is gone or whatever else, and you remain in that path, you will perish, you will die. The law, the light that brought you that revelation is bringing you death. But if when the law is revealing your sin, you will take or we will respond to it. So the law that is holy, righteous, and good is for the sole purpose of getting me to recognize my sin, repent of that sin, and receive the forgiveness of that sin from a holy, righteous, and good God. But if I don't turn from my wicked ways, sin can deceive me to turn me away from God and therefore be eternally separated from Him. So we see that the law of God that made me aware of sin brings spiritual death if the awareness of sin does not lead to the awareness of grace. If I only see my sin and remain there, the wages of that sin, the end of that sin is death. But when I'm made aware of my sin, if I'm aware of grace, if I will turn, if I will repent, if I will say, Lord God, thank you for what you have done. Now, this law of God, this word of God, this command of God leads to life. So if the law of God brings death, in a conditional manner, the law of God and sin, the two laws of God and the, and the law of sin, are in conflict. The two laws of, of these, these two laws are in conflict within us in as much as we live according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. Here, here's, here's what I want you to recognize. Paul is not stating, the Bible is not teaching us that the law of sin and death is equal to the law of God. That's not the point. 
And the point here that he's making is not that we are subject to, we're inevitably subject to a continuous conflict between the law of God and the law of sin. And that we can never have victory over sin. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not trying to make the point that, oh, here's the law of God, but here's the law of sin and death, and they're just at conflict with each other, and, you know, they'll keep being in conflict all your life, and they're equal and opposite forces. That's not the point he's trying to make. He is pointing out that there is a conflict that is there only in as much as we feed the conflict. If we live according to the flesh, then yes, the sinful nature rises up. It has strength. Just as we sang about the joy of the Lord being our strength, the indulgence of the flesh is the strength of the sin. And so the Bible is saying to us, the law of sin in us is strengthened just as the law of God in us is weakened when we indulge the flesh. Every time we indulge the flesh, we're having that impact. We're strengthening the law of sin and we're weakening the law of God. That's its effect in us, its impact in us. And then, when we deny the flesh, when we crucify our flesh with its passions and desires, when we say no to ungodliness, the law of sin, the power of sin, and the attraction of sin is weakened, and the law of God, the knowledge of God, our grasp of his love for us, the desire to obey his commands is strengthened. Every time we obey him, the law of sin, its power is weakened, and the law of God, its effect, its impact on us is strengthened. But it's, it works in the converse. So the conflict exists, but the conflict is not some external inevitable conflict. The conflict is fed by us. That's what Paul's trying to make the point about. Right? So, we come to him and we say, Lord God, we want to live victorious. Now, I'm not suggesting that we can live in this earth entirely free from sin. Wouldn't that be nice? That we would be able to live in this earth entirely free from sin. Huh? We do not become sinless during our lives on earth. No matter what, what you may hear about all sorts of things that there may be. We don't become sinless during our time here on earth. But we don't have to settle for sinful defeat or a perpetual battle that causes us to become weary and lose heart. Just because we say, well, you know, I know that I'll never be sinless. Well, okay, then that means I'm just going to be defeated by sin. No, that's not what the Bible is asking us to do. So what do we typically do when we read this passage or we think of our own condition or we, we look at our spiritual state and we read that into the scripture? What do, we, what do we typically tell ourselves about our conflict with sin? We say, oh, nothing will change. I'm never going to be able to resist or deal with or overcome this particular sin. And you know what it is. For each one of us, it's something slightly different. But we say to ourselves, ah, this thing. You know, in all these other areas I'm good, but in this particular sin, I, don't, I, I, just, I, just, don't, I just don't think I can do it. It's not, like that I, it's not like I haven't tried. I just don't think I can break free. I'm not spiritual enough. 
I'm not strong enough. I always have some good days and some bad days. That's just the way it's going to be, this side of heaven. I don't know why I do these things that I do. It must be how I'm wired. And you know, my mother was just like this. You know? So, must be. And it's not just me. Everyone else I know is doing the same kind of thing. So, I'm no better than anybody else. We make all sorts of reasons, excuses, explanations. Most of the time we say this in our heads. Many times we say it out loud too. And we're telling others why we can't be victorious over sin. Remember the phrase Paul uses in verse 11. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. What is the deception? The deception is that I'm doomed to go through the rest of my life with this spiritual conflict. There's no way out. I'm deceived when I think, oh, I'm, I'm just having to, I just have to live with this. And most days, most days, I'm just going to be overcome by this sin rather than overcoming this sin. That's the deception. Because that doesn't line up with what the word of God is telling us. We've come up with that. Here's the critical truth that Paul states in verse 25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What did he deliver us from? What did he deliver us to? To say, oh yeah, uh, this sin, besetting sin, entangling sin, something that can easily entangle me. Uh, you see, when the word says that he delivers us, he delivers us from the law of sin and death. Which means that we have been delivered, we have been set free. The law of sin and death is in fact rendered powerless because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because of what he did. Because he paid the price. Because he gave all. He gave all to pay the penalty of sin. Because he triumphed over the sin and the grave. He, because he fulfilled all the plan and purpose of God for our redemption, I can have victory. I can be set free. The law of sin and death no longer has to have control over me. If I think that it does, I am believing a lie. And it's not just the law of sin and death, mind you. The Bible, as we've seen here in all these verses that we're talking about, that the law of, that what Christ has done has delivered us from the law of God too, in the sense that we're not under the law. We're not burdened by the law. We're not obligated by the law. We're not saying, because of the law, then I'm saved. Because I keep the law, then I'm saved. No, God says, I release you from that. 
It was never that way. It was always justification by faith. But I want to make it explicitly clear to you that it's not even that. So it's not even the law of God that you have to be bound by or under and so on. I want to release you to this true freedom that we would be set free in every way without any restriction to freely, willfully love God and love to keep his commandments. So then the law of the Lord is not an imposition, it's not an obligation, it's not anything that is negative, it is a joy. We welcome it. We say, oh, I want to do this. Oh God, I thank you. I said a few minutes ago that we were deceived into thinking that we can never be free from our besetting sins. We are also deceived, albeit in a little bit more subtle way, in a little bit more of a subtle deception, into thinking less of Christ's sacrifice when we have a defeatist attitude about our sin and our earthly lives. Think about it. We are being deceived into thinking that what Christ did is not sufficient to deal with my sin. I know he died for the sins of the world, but this particular area in my life, I don't know. So when we say, I just don't think I can be victorious over this sin, aren't we really saying, I just don't think that Christ can be victorious over this sin. Isn't it? Because we're saying, no, I've struggled with this all my life. You know, and I thought I was doing really well. And then, oh, that, that trigger. Oh, and off it went. And I just don't think I can, I can get victory. If that's what you're doing, you're saying, Christ is not sufficient. Christ did not defeat all sin. He defeated most. But this, I'm not so sure. Which means, there's a victory that Christ has already won. And there's a victorious Christian life that I can live in the earth today. Will I fail? Will I fall? Sure, but it doesn't mean that I give up or that I believe the lies of the enemy. Which means that as I come to the Lord and I respond and I apply this word of God and I say, Lord, I want to live according to this word. I want to live in the deliverance that Christ has given me. This is tough on a daily basis to live out the way that the Lord has delivered you and to say, Lord God, I thank you that you have given me life and you have broken the power of sin and death and I don't need to be under its control. This is not an easy thing because when the temptation to sin comes, it's much easier to give in to that sin than to resist it. Especially, especially if it's been a habitual sin. If, you, if you've been used to sinning that way, if you've been used to getting angry, it's much easier to, for your voice to go up, up, up Right? And for you to start becoming worked up than to stop. You're used to that. It's much easier to lie if you, that's what has been habitually true. It's much easier to do something that you have been in for all your life and then just say, well, I can't help it. Than to say, oh God, thank you that you have given me the victory. Thank you that it is your Holy Spirit that is indwelling me. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have paid this price. And I, although there is the evil in me, although my sinful nature desires to have its own way, I thank you, Lord, that by your power I can crucify the sinful nature with its passions and desires. I read earlier from Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Let me just read to you a few more verses from Galatians 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it begins this way. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If you say, no, 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 I don't think this thing, I can get victory over this. You're saying, I'm going to go back and take the yoke of slavery and put it back on me. You, my brothers, and going further down in Galatians chapter 5 to verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Read these scriptures. Sometimes you have to read this familiar scripture with a different lens on. And this morning I'm challenging you. Read these scriptures again with the lens of the law of God, the law of sin and death. Read these scriptures and look at these phrases. There is no law now. We, we tend to sometimes focus on the behavior. We tend to focus on the spiritual aspect. We'll, we'll say this, but look and read in these scriptures. And he says, against such things, there is no law. Why? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You know, we have a great joy in this Christian walk. It's not easy, but it's great joy because Christ has done everything for us. He's given his life, he shed his blood, and he says, I've set you free. Stay in that freedom. Don't return again to that yoke of slavery. Don't pick up that sin. Don't say, oh, I can't get rid of it. I'm stuck with this. And oh, and, and certainly, you may have that opinion about somebody else too. I'm stuck with them because they can't put down this sin. But, you know, let's go to the Lord 
and say, Lord, you died for his sin, my sin, your sin. I mean, the Lord died for all of it. He didn't leave something, you know, unreconciled, unresolved. When he said it is finished on the cross, he was saying it's finished. And so we come to him and we say, Lord, I appropriate your victory. Every time that I have that tendency or there is an opportunity for me to pick up that sin again, oh Lord God, I resist it. I resist it because of your victory, because of what you have done. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So love God, love people. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, to keep the law of God. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. If you're listening today and you've been struggling with sin, if you're listening today and you don't even know how to relate to this idea of sin and the law of sin and death, if you're saying, I don't know how to get victory, maybe you haven't been looking to Jesus. Maybe you've been looking at your sin too long. Maybe you've been looking at the other person who is prompting you to sin. Maybe you're looking at all sorts of circumstances and explanations and saying, well, this is the reason that it's happening. But I want to encourage you this morning, look to Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Jesus has done it. There's a victory that is there for us. And so that is the opportunity and the blessing that we have. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that your word gives us all of the flaws, all of the, Lord, all of the shortcomings, all the ways in which, Lord, we can go astray. And Lord, we read, we understand, and we can relate to the fact that there is a sinful nature in us that is constantly at conflict with the Spirit. But I thank you, Lord, that you give us victory. Lord, that you died to cleanse us of our sins. And I thank you, Lord, that you have made us victorious in Christ Jesus. You call us more than conquerors because we are hidden in Christ and Christ has defeated sin and death. You tell us, Lord, that we can be overcomers because Christ is in us and Christ has overcome the world. So we commit ourselves to you. We pray for your grace, your mercy. Lord, even this week, through the rest of the month, through our days, Lord, we want to walk in the victory that you have given us. Not to excuse our sin, not to misread these passages, not to misapply them, but Lord, to say, oh God, I thank you that I can be victorious. I can be an overcomer. 
I can be living in the joy of the Lord that will be my strength, that will cause sin to be weakened and your word to be strengthened. Thank you, Jesus. We commit ourselves to you, praying all this in Jesus' name. Amen.